the fact that they prescribed me the combo of, you know, opiates and benzos, just it made it to where I sought them out because I thought I needed them. You know, I had prior to that I had legitimate diagnosis of, you know, uh, generalized anxiety, panic disorder, agoraphobia, stuff like that. And so I really thought I needed it. And that's why I like, I love to share so much about these specific things is because I understand people want relief. You know what I mean? I understand that I'm not against that. What I want for people is to, I basically want to reduce suffering because I experienced tons of suffering as it relates to specifically those two medications. Hello, friends and family. Welcome back to the Sobers Dope Podcast. I'm very excited today to present our guest, Macaulay Sexton. He is one of my friends from TikTok. He is one of the people that's trailblazing in addiction education, especially in the area of opiates and pharmaceutical drugs and recovery from pharmaceutical drugs. And I just, um, I find his TikToks fascinating. He's an excellent human being and I'm really excited to bring him in. Macaulay Sexton is a public speaker trained in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Service Work. He's a recovery advocate, recovery coach, and musician. He has seven years experience in traditional recovery and a strong conviction to promote recovery from pharmaceutical abuse with a focus on compassion yet accountable services to others. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really excited to bring him in live right now. Hold on as we bring in our special guest today, Macaulay Sexton. Disclaimer and trigger warning. This episode deals with sensitive topics and just want to notify anyone who may be listening that may be sensitive to these subjects to be cautious and we want to respectfully issue a trigger warning. How you doing? I'm doing good, Pop. How are you doing today? That's good. I'm doing well. I just read your bio and did a little introduction to you. I'm doing well. I can't complain. How has this whole COVID environment affected you? I mean, honestly, to be completely honest, I kind of liked the the solitude in a way. Yeah, me too. I mean, I mean, that's just me being completely real about it. Like, uh, I would consider myself to be a hermit in certain aspects, but at the same time, I can engage with like large crowds of people. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. Um, but for me, it just it just gave me an opportunity to just like double down on the disciplines, you know, and like really just see if I'm okay with myself, you know, like that's the thing is like in addiction and shit, it's just like, it sucks to be by yourself and to be in your feelings and just, you know, in, with yourself. And I really got to, you know, address that on in early recovery, but then kind of look at it again during quarantine. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely, it was like a weird romance to the solitude during this time. In the beginning, it was a lot of fear and stuff, but somewhere my most fascinating point was this past summer. It was just like, I don't know. I was went for these long walks in the park. That's when I first got on TikTok. When you first started seeing me appear, I was outside talking about the sunlight, getting into that whole energy and just having that freedom shifted my perspective on the whole nine to five and everything like that. Like, I think we all got to gear ourselves towards following our passion. So I'm glad you well, though. You look good, brother. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. I gained mad weight during <laughs> quarantine. Right, <laughs> but, right, right. But it was, I mean, it was good for me, though, man, because like I 
in addiction, I was like underweight always, you know, right. and even in recovery, like uh, in early, early recovery, I kind of ballooned up and because I was on a lot of medications, you know what I mean? Like right. the, the antipsychotics and the antidepressants. And so and I was eating trash, you know, but uh, for the first time I've gained actual healthy weight and I've been able to maintain it. So that was actually really good for me. And it had a lot to do with like switching my diet. I actually, you know, went to a full plant-based diet and then I was able to nice. gain weight, which is, you don't hear that very often. You usually hear people that go that way. They kind of get too skinny or even like emaciated, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, it's been good, man. I, I really enjoy having a little weight on me. It, it does a lot for your mental health is what I found. Right. Like, uh, straight up. I was telling my audience, like, I'm, you're like, um, I, I would like to think of you as my personal expert that I go to and that I look to for anything related to pharmaceutical drug recovery, recovery from benzodiazepines, recovery from opiates. Um, this is big in the Sober's Dope community. Um, I want to give a special shout out to our main man, Billy Brown, who's in recovery from his drugs of choice. And he was on our show and I love him. Our last episode had a great young man, Suleiman um, Hassan, who was talking about how he, from an injury, got prescribed drug pills. And then that led into this terrible addiction with opiates, which based on economics led to heroin addiction. I want so so you're like my go to expert. You're one of the most the people that's passionate on TikTok and social media and really educating people in all of these micro aspects of uh, recovery from pharmaceutical drugs, benzodiazepines and opiates. So can you tell us your story and everything that brought you to this point to where you have all of this clarity on the recovery process when it comes to these drugs? Of course. Yeah, well. For me, uh, I feel like I was predisposed, you know, to addiction. And that's just, I think that there's genetic factors, situational factors, um, past trauma, all that stuff, you know, that's all relevant. Um, but because of that, when I was prescribed opiates for a back injury, because I got hit by a car um, on my bike going super fast, basically, like I said, I, I was more likely to be addicted. And so the second that I was administered them intravenously, you know, right on the spot while I was on the ground, I remember having what some people call like an aha moment, but it was negative. And it was like, this is, this is the answer to, to my overwhelming sensitivity to the world, really. Um, you know, I think it's relevant to speak on the fact that I was just a very sensitive kid and felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. And I felt like, I didn't necessarily like the way that the world was at the time, you know? And so having a numbing sensation is very, very enticing when you felt overwhelmingly sensitive. Um, and so that's definitely very relevant when I'm speaking about, you know, addiction to, to opiates and benzos actually, because benzodiazepines, you know, they affect your GABA. And so, you know, if you take them as prescribed, they can still, have a negative effect. And I'm not saying this to, you know, judge people that are taking them. It's just, in my experience, they kind of perpetuated my problems. But basically, for years and years, I viewed these as my solution, you know what I mean? And at first, I didn't abuse them, I took them as prescribed, but um, I was prescribed a combo, you know, I was prescribed 
uh, at first Dilaudid, which is very strong, and then uh, Valium. And that's a benzodiazepine that's a muscle relaxer. And it's, you know, it, it's pretty strong. And so the combination alone taken as prescribed, it just, it put me into a place to where I was a little bit more carefree. I was a little bit more, you know, just unaware almost in, in a way that I liked it. And for me, that was detrimental because ultimately what it did is it compromised a lot of my morals, a lot of my, it, it affected my decision-making, you know what I mean? And it, it definitely put me into the, the drug culture and the lifestyle, bro. And so that for me was, I'm, I'm really just trying to put it in a nutshell and not get too deep into specifics and really just touch on the, the things that were super prevalent for me. And so for me, it was starting off super sensitive. This acts as a solution. The solution is inadvertently causing more problems, more trauma to build up because of questionable behavior. You know what I mean? And so that's ultimately what it did. And it just, it put me in a place to where I just, I wasn't my true self, you know, because as a young kid, I was super bright and, and nice and loving. And some of those things started to go away, you know, and started to kind of be just overshadowed by the opiates and the benzos. And so my journey basically was me just going kind of deeper and deeper into what I like to call the dark abyss, because it was visually like that. Cause I got to the point at the end where, you know, I was blacking out pretty much every day. And this is when I was abusing the medication, you know, I was not right. at this point, it wasn't as prescribed. Um, I can explain it. Like it started off as a dependence and then turned into an addiction um, because of the abuse. Um, and that's just, that's just my experience. And so, so basically, you know, that went on for about six years of just being pretty much blacked out. Um, and it, it wasn't a good experience. It, it started to feel bad. Um, I started to not like the, the feeling of it even. And it was just what I did to, to be normal at that point. Um, so at my first attempt at, at quitting was because I ran out of benzodiazepines. And I basically, I went to detox. I lasted about two days. While I was there, I saw someone die of alcohol withdrawal. I saw, yeah, and that was, that was intense, you know, because I had alcoholism in my family. And so to see that firsthand, and witness that was crazy. Um, you know, I saw a dude with all of his fingers amputated from intravenous use, you know, and, and the reason I bring that up is because that wasn't enough to, to make me stop. You know, I saw that and I was still like, you know, I still had the, the motivation and the urge to use. And so I ended up leaving AMA, you know, that was, uh, my choice at the time. I, I remember a counselor told me like, this isn't going to turn out good. You know, you're only going to go lower and do more drugs. And I remember thinking, how corny is that? Like, you know, I just, I just thought it was, I thought it was corny at the time. And I was like, you know, I'm like, what are you talking about, bro? No. Like, and so I left AMA and I relapsed within like six hours, you know what I mean? Wow. And yeah. so, so that's when the awareness came into play. That's when the awareness that this wasn't working this isn't good. This really isn't a solution. And that's when I got really dark and, and that lasted a while. It lasted years to where, you know, I was, I was just very dark. My mom would call me Darth Vader because I was that just negative. If you said anything positive around me, I would like throw out something negative. And it just, 
it was so far from my true self. And, and, you know, it was pessimism, being cynical, just seeing, seeing the world as just a bad place. And, you know, it was exaggerated by the medications I was taking and abusing, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, basically from there, I was miserable and I started not really wanting to be around anymore. And, and that went on for, for a long time. Um, basically until I had an intervention because it was at the point to where I was trying to basically take my own life by taking enough drugs. And it was intentional at that point, you know? And, and so that's, that's where I got. Luckily I had people around me that loved and cared about me and, you know, they staged an intervention, which I was not happy about. I was very pissed off. And within that, that day, basically I had, two people that I really loved about tell me how much it scared them, how much it hurt them, but how much they cared about me. And it was coming from a compassionate place. And that's, I'm a huge advocate for compassionate service because that's ultimately what helped me. I'm not saying that you can't be blunt and you can't be brutally honest. Um, but for me, the compassion is what, that's what ultimately got me, you know, I will say it was partially because I was extremely codependent. So it, you know, I cared a lot about certain people in my life and what they thought about me. And I could basically just that, I just have to say that because it was relevant. But uh, same day I got on a plane within a couple hours, went to Jackson, Mississippi. You know, I'm from Austin, Texas, very liberal place, very different, grew up in a hippie family. And now I'm in Jackson, Mississippi with, and it, it, I remember I looked at the flag and it looked like a rebel flag. And I was like, Oh no, wow. no. <laughs> I was like, I don't know about this, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, ultimately there's a woman named Lisa Williams there who was a counselor and she was brutally honest with me. She told me her experience. She was in recovery. Um, she wasn't just coming from a clinical perspective. I think that's a key part of recovery for me is you can have the clinical aspect, but you need the lived experience aspect because that is ultimately, that's what I trust more than anything, bro. Like I, I know I may be biased a little bit when it comes to that, but that just, that's what helped me. And she was a life. She was an angel, bro. Like this, this lady telling me her experience and it was crazy. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I'm not, I had this mentality that I was like, the worst off. Like I was the worst. Oh, no one's had bad experiences like me. And it's just like, it's almost like an ego thing, but rooted in like being like just negative and thinking that you are bad. And, and right. she kind of broke that down pretty, pretty easily for me. Um, and yeah, that, that was like, when I really look and take inventory of, of the whole thing, like her, like she was just a huge, huge part of it. And she started the road to me sharing my experience with another recovered addict. And that that's, that's just what changed everything, bro. And that's, that's what changed everything from there. I gained willingness prior to that. I didn't go to treatment willing, like willingly. I went there cause I was scared and I, I didn't want to be homeless. <laughs> that's, right. you know, that's it. And it did evolve into me doing it for myself, but at first it, it wasn't bro. And that's just the truth of the matter is that, I was like, okay, I guess I have to do this. I don't know how, like how else I'm going to make it, make it. And so, so yeah, that's where I gained the willingness. I gained a little bit of clarity 
And I was able to start kind of messing with some steps, not really fully going into them, but I could see what they were. And I realized I was going to have to like really address all the stuff that I had been, you know, hiding from. And so that's where I gained some, just like some willingness to live again, man. I was like, Oh, I I want this now. I I do want to be alive, but I had to get my brain clear. That was the thing. It's like, for me, I need to be, I needed to be removed from Austin. I needed to be somewhere in the middle of nowhere (laughs) and you know, no, no access to anything. And that, that works for me, you know? And so, like I said, I spent three days in detox and then my first full stay in treatment, I was able to maintain long-term sobriety. So uh, I definitely advocate for, for treatment. You know, I think it definitely can work. I think it should be longer than 30 days personally. I know, I think you said you were in treatment for a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's like optimal, bro. I right, was in right. for, for four months I was in and that's right. still, I could have gone longer, but right. uh, I'll just wrap it up with this. I went to aftercare, yeah. IOP, basically I did sober living for six months. I got a sober coach. I got a sponsor. I attended 12 step meetings, 90 meetings in 90 days, uh, more than that, honestly. And therapy counseling i did like intensive therapy for ptsd um for bipolar all the, like just anything that i could do i did it because at that point i was like all right i actually i want to live and i don't want to be miserable you know right. <laughs> look um you said a lot and one i sitting here looking at you brother you are a ball of light man like i just every time i see you every time i met you just a really good individual you have this amazing energy and that's that you know that's that parallel that we look at when you're describing yourself the darkness being in that despair being negative because you was in so much pain right you was internalizing all of this pain you had this addiction so you was projecting negativity but it just was because you was hurt and i'm creating this mental image of you in that darkness and that pain and to see you here now this way and only knowing you this way is just an amazing and beautiful testament of the power of recovery um i want to talk about um trauma now when you got into that car this is where i think a lot of people just skip over let's go back to the car accident because most of the time when what leads to these prescription drugs is some form of accident or injury and that's traumatic man like what was the like was it like let's talk about the trauma of getting hit by a car, man, and how that affected the whole process. And did that lead to this darkness and your negative attitude and just clinging on to the euphoria that the drugs was giving you and how bad was the injury? So, I mean, that's a great question. The reason that I kind of blow past that is because I've done a lot of work in accepting it. You know what I mean? And so I used to blame that. That was, Mm. You know, that was the, that was it. That's what ruined my life. And I I focused on that and it was very unhealthy for me. Now I can take personal responsibility for my decision to continue taking the medication, but I can also acknowledge the trauma that I got from it. So basically it was extremely traumatic because one, I was going as fast as I could on a bike and two, I was listening to music really loud. I wasn't really paying attention. So I, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't being accountable at all. I was just like going as fast as I could downhill. And basically someone made a left unprotected turn. And so I had a green light and that's all I looked at. You know what I mean? And so basically what I did was T-bone a car 
and fly off my bike. I think it was upwards of a hundred feet that I flew. Cause I was, I mean, I was going as fast as I could. Wow. Um, and so luckily, you know, I had a, I skateboarded as a, as a teenager. And so I knew how to fall, but as I was in the air, I remember thinking one, I'm dead. This is it. I can't believe this is how I'm going to die. And fuck, (laughs) that was the other thought I had, honestly. And, and so basically what happened is I did a tuck and I did like a front flip. And so the first thing that I hit was my right shoulder and I fractured my right shoulder blade. The second thing was I flopped down on my back. So on my L5, basically. And so that fractured my, my vertebrae. And the initial pain of it, I wasn't conscious for because I blacked out in, in the air, basically. I woke up to a homeless dude that was like, yo, are you good? And I was like, ah, I tried to move and I passed out again. And so I basically woke up to EMS there. Um, they shut down a street called Lamar in Austin, which is a huge street. And basically my mom and dad, they called my mom and dad to the scene because they didn't know how bad my injuries were. And so looking over and seeing them crying and my little sister as well. And so my family's on the side of the road crying and like, Oh, and I'm just like, what? It was very surreal and it was super traumatic. And just to the point of like, it didn't seem real to me, you know? And, uh, Shortly after that, they told me we're going to give you some pain medication. So this happened on the ground, actually, before they moved me or anything, they gave me pain meds. And so instantly that covered up a lot of the, a lot of the trauma right then, to be completely honest, is because, like I said, I had that aha moment of, whoa, this is like just a weight being lifted off my shoulders. And so that right there was detrimental the first instant because when you get administered opiates intravenously that's quick and it's very strong and so so basically for for years after that like i said it was the main focus of what had ruined my life it was that and i wasn't an addict that's what i told myself not an addict i'm i'm just dependent on medications that i have prescriptions for and you know that was my narrative that's what i stuck with I would doctor shop, you know, which is going to a doctor seeking out specific medications. And the fact that they prescribed me the combo of, you know, opiates and benzos, just it made it to where I sought them out because I thought I needed them. You know, I had prior to that I had legitimate diagnosis of, you know, uh, generalized anxiety, panic disorder, agoraphobia, stuff like that. And so I really thought I needed it. And that's why I like, I love to share so much about these specific things is because I understand people want relief. You know what I mean? I understand that I'm not against that. What I want for people is to, I basically want to reduce suffering because I experienced tons of suffering as it relates to specifically those two medications. And so basically I just continued on thinking that was the solution. Like I mentioned before, compromising myself in various ways. Um, and it just was how I operated. And I remember I separated myself from people who identified as addicts or alcoholics. I thought that that wasn't me at all. You know, I didn't think that was, that was me because of the prescription. And so I'm not saying this to invalidate, um, chronic pain. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this to invalidate anxiety. I 
I don't, I, I won't say this now. Like I don't identify with chronic pain. I don't want to say, even say that I have that because words are powerful. And right. I constantly said that it was a, I was like putting a curse on myself basically by right. always saying oh, I have chronic pain. But basically what I experienced that added more trauma to it was that residual pain that comes from taking opiates long-term. So opiates affect your pain receptors to the point that your body will create more. And some people get this thing. I I forget the name of it. It's like hyper analgesia or something. I'm, I'm butchering it completely, but basically to where their pain gets like exaggerated and worse. I had a little bit of an aspect of that to where I was perpetually in pain and this was years after, you know what I mean? And so that's why I, I, I'm very, I don't, I don't think opiates are efficient. That's just being completely blunt. I do not think they're efficient. I think if you just broke your whole body, yes, maybe that's, you know, applicable. But personally, I think that if you are predisposed in any way, if you have it in your family, I think that it should be used only in a hospital very sparingly, if at all. And so, you know, that's, that's the opiate aspect. The, um, the, ben- I mean, I'm going off now, bro. Like right, right. off the top. No, nah, no, you, you, you're a hundred percent on topic. So opiate, the opiates is totally different. So for some people who don't know, uh, the, the benzodiazepines are tranquilizers, right? And muscle, they have different forms. They're, they're made for anxiety, they're tranquilizers and also muscle relaxers. So you that's Xanax, they have volume, they have the, but, and then, but they're not opiates. Opiates are actually no. the pain medications like the Oxycontin yes. and stuff like that, that deals with your pain receptors and create this euphoria for you. All right. So those are two different things, but sometimes the doctors and hospitals prescribe them together. Is that's what you're saying? Yes. And then honestly, it's not that common because this combo alone, is prone to cause respiratory failure. So that's the risk associated with it is you're taking oh, too strong wow. depressants, you know? Okay. And so that is what was so risky about my addiction specifically is because it was long-term opiate and benzo use and abuse. You Got know? you. Um, the next thing I want, an hour came back to me. I wanted to, this is deep. I never thought about this till you said it. What yeah. the consent, right? So I think there should be some level of consent in emergency situations with drugs that are historically create addictions. Like, so you're sitting there, you're in this pain. They never knew. They don't know if you're predisposed. They don't know your family history. They just shoot you up with some powerful drugs that set you off on this cascading effect of addiction. And I do anyone ever talk about consent? Like, how do we explain this to the patient? Is there any detox once you before you get out the hospital? Is there any education surrounding the strength of these drugs? Like, what's the deal with that? And what is your thoughts on that? Well, okay, so the the best thing that could happen is that a history of addiction would be in your medical records as early as possible. So even if you're a little kid, I'm sorry, but if, if you have family history of addiction or alcoholism, honestly, that should be in your medical records. Um, but when it comes to an emergency situation, so even someone who is less likely to willingly take an opiate is going to, is going to accept it because it's traumatic and it's, you're in pain and it's just a, you have endorphins, right? Like 
you know, rushing through your brain. And, and it's just, right, right. so I, I really do agree with what you're saying. Like there should be this consent, but it's, it's honestly going to be kind of tainted by the, the trauma that you've experienced or the pain you're experiencing at the time. Right. Um, right. But that's what it brings. What that brings up to me is like I said, I think it should be something that's in your medical records. And so, you know, ideally you could avoid those situations by giving someone opiates very, very short term. The thing is, is it's opiates have been administered very differently now for, for years. Um, that's why a lot of chronic pain patients are very pissed off at drug addicts because of the abuse to Oxycontin, which has been shifted to heroin. And, and you know, that's a whole nother subject. But I, I think the blame needs to go not to the addict. You don't, I mean, I don't hate to say blame, but just the emphasis and the focus needs to go to the fact that these medications are not efficient long-term. And um, I understand that someone that's experiencing chronic pain, that's the most messed up thing that you could possibly say to them when that's the only thing they get relief from. But, but going back to, you know, the consent thing, like, I think that should be an aspect of it to where it's on your medical record. I think that it should be depending on the injury, it should be like, no, like no more than a week of use because generally speaking, like two weeks alone is enough to like kick it off. Really. Right, the, right. The, the real, n- not to mention, I mean, I'm talking about actual addiction because like behavioral issues can pop up like that, you know? And, and when I speak on, on addiction specifically, I do understand the difference between dependency and addiction. And a lot of people, uh, you know, that's, there's a misconception there, but for me, ultimately it's the lifestyle side effects, the negative behavioral issues, the compromised morals, the, uh, just different things that can happen situationally involving, uh, consequences with the law lifestyle, um, you know, relationship, all that. And so that stuff can kick off really quick. You know, it can really kick off quick, but the same thing applies to benzos, honestly, okay. as far all as, right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'll be completely blunt. Like the, the clinical trials for Xanax did not look good. They, they showed that basically dependency was very likely after just a small amount of use. Um, they showed basically that anytime you discontinue use that there's going to be rebound anxiety. That's far worse than the initial anxiety. Um, you know, and so that's, that's something that I experienced firsthand and, taking it long-term and yes, I, I abused both opiates and benzos, but at first I, I didn't, I took them as prescribed. It may have not, it may not have been that long that I took them as prescribed, but even during that time, I started to notice the, the things that it was doing to me and, and actually enabling me to avoid stuff. And that's really like what, like avoid stuff like what? Okay. So with opiates, it, it basically, i I, I identify as a very sensitive, empathetic person. Okay. That's, right. that's just who I am. That's, that's, that's just who I am. Energetically, I can feel people's vibes. If I'm around someone and they got a bad vibe, I can feel right. it, right. Um, right. you know? And so that took that away to where I was kind of, it was like, I was kind of looking at it from, I had like a, a glass, a piece of glass in front of me, almost like a, tinted glass that was like okay wow, i can like i can see this but it's not affecting me the same it's it's not energetically draining me um and i'm able to just kind of observe and react accordingly um so 
the, the numbing sensation, the euphoria, the warmth for me, it was reminiscent of a, of a womb. That's what I would compare it to is. And for, and for someone who's experienced trauma in their life, that's very, very persuasive. And it's to, to experience that, the feeling of being warm and numb. And so that, that is what it did for me. And that's what it helped me to avoid was, was anything related to sensitivities. Um, it did affect emotions and kind of put me at a, at a level place, but I also mm-hmm. could go either exagger exaggerated either with anger or sadness or any feeling. So it, it kind of right. it exaggerates that stuff. Then you add benzos, which for me did some of the same things, except for there's not really a numbing, you know, there's not really a numbing sensation. You are going to get the euphoria and stuff like that. That can be super, super addicting, but basically the benzos for me, it made it to where I didn't care about like what people were saying. I didn't care about what was happening in the world. I didn't care about my emotions as much. I was kind of, it helped, it helped me to stuff them down really is, is what benzos did is it, it would make it to where I, I, I describe it like this. It's an anxiety loop to where you have, let's say I have a panic attack. Okay. I take a benzo that gives me immediate relief. I want to call it that, but then guess what? The next day when I wake up, I can remember that thing that happened that triggered me. Wow. (laughs) So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take another one. Correct. And then from there, well, guess what? Something happens while I'm on a benzo, while I'm on benzos. I then that kind of stays there a little bit more because you're already, you know, you're already under the influence. And so that just piles up and piles up. Right. And you're also, you know, your, your GABA is just being stimulated so much. And so it's, it's giving you these, these feelings of just being like, it's a good feeling at first, you know what I mean? And and when you've been so sensitive and when you've been so just, overwhelmingly just just feeling like oh my god like raw you know is the best word so so that's what benzos would do is they would basically keep me in a anxiety loop to where i could just add more and more stuff i i will say that people that are doing intensive therapy while taking benzos are less likely to experience that um if they're being accountable and honest you know um but yeah, that, that was ultimately my experience to where it was just a perpet it was a perpetual loop. It was groundhog day. And then the same type of thing with opiates. And so I really want to stress this for me, one of the worst parts of addiction was dependency. Okay. And I, that's just my thing. Like, right. I, and I'm not saying that to judge people that are dependent and or anything like that, but ultimately I knew I am so dependent on these things, you know, like I, right. it is, it has complete control over my well being, basically. And so for me, a huge motivation, once I got cleared up in treatment and I got some of that stuff out of my system was, Hey, I don't want to be dependent on anything. I want to depend on something, some energetically, like the universe, or if you want to call it God or the source, like that's right. I ultimately that dependency and those, terrible experiences brought me to that place to where I was like, if I'm going to like depend on something outside of myself, 
it better be something that has my best interest at heart, you know? Right. When you talk about, all right, so this is deep um, dependency. And if so, I want to go, I want to go back a little bit to GABA. So for anyone who doesn't know what that is, GABA is one of our neurotransmitter hormones. So we have like dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, GABA is one of them. How does GABA, well, what does GABA do for us when we're not on any drug and how does the, how does it, and how is it affected once you are on these benzos? Okay. So basically look, my personal thing is I can acknowledge that some people believe or that even some physicians and doctors believe that there are chemical imbalances. Okay. Right. Right. Um, I do think that there's almost an esoteric side to this. And I, this may sound like woo woo or whatever, but there is like the spiritual aspect to it and a power of intention aspect to it. Okay. And a word aspect to it. I know I'm going off here. No, no, you never. The, you're good. So basically look, I'm not going to sit here and act like I know completely how neurotransmitters work. I'm not a scientist. I'm not claiming to be that, but I will say that, for me, the, the way that my brain was functioning had to do with past behaviors and past things that I was consuming. So, right. you know, prior, like, look, I focus on, you know, opiates and benzos, but I was prior to that, I was drinking alcohol, you know, I, I wasn't a binge drinker, but I, I didn't drink in a healthy way at all. Right. Um, you know, I was consuming a lot of, cannabis in an unhealthy way personally right. that was you know and as someone who grew up in a hippie family that was part of right. my right. culture and my right. life right you right. know my grandma smoked weed until she died you know that yeah yeah you know so uh the reason i bring that up is because i mean this is going off to like frontal lobe kind of area nah, but, it's good. we need to go here we need to go let's take it go ahead but, I feel like personally, and this is that thing that this sounds like some Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, just say no type shit. But in, in all honesty, I do feel like the fact that I was predisposed to addiction, the past, the fact that I had some trauma in early childhood um, as like a toddler and stuff that made it to where when I consume something that could affect my prefrontal cortex, it's, kind of set me up to where I feel like it, it wasn't as developed as it could have been. And I don't know the science behind this. I, this is, I've done just very, a small amount of research on this, but I, I like to kind of look at it. Like basically it didn't matter what, what I was consuming at a younger age. The fact that I was consuming something and, and changing the way that I felt made it to where I was more likely to become dependent Um when I, when I was administered opiates and benzos. And so I really think that going back to like the, the chemical imbalance type thing, like I do think that some of these things are valid, but I think that we as humans have, are very resilient and have a lot of power over our bodies and that we can heal ourselves with the help of certain things. And I'm not against clinical treatment or, anything like that, but, uh, or I understand administering medications even, but for me, there's, like I said, there's this esoteric aspect where these medications at times I feel can kind of 
do more harm than good in certain situations. And when you say for, for our listeners, when you say esoteric, what are you referring to? So when I say esoteric, I'm using, using it as like a general term to things that are, I'm not like, not according to like the, if you were to Google esoteric, right, right. I view esoteric as things that are, I'll use like more trippy or more spiritually related, Good, right, uh, right. more just, just like that, you know, and, and I could be botching the meaning of nah, esoteric. Nah, you that's, go. You, that's close. You know, that's good. That's when I think of esoteric, I think of things that are kind of hidden and that are on the energetic spiritual side and right. is, is what I would relate it to. But um, going back to what you were saying just about GABA specifically, I think that when we abuse benzos, it, it said, I'm not sure the exact function that it has long-term after not, after, I mean, long-term taking it or even after, yeah. but I do know that regardless of that, we can heal from anything. And I know I'm like, just you're <laughs> going good. off there, but what, what I want you to, what I want you to know, and I want to give you some ease here, right? I should have pre, I should have prefaced this in the beginning. Sober is dope is extremely rooted in spirituality. We definitely are proponents of god we're proponents for all things spiritual we love meditation we love the fascination of that world that's some that's one of the things that could take us to higher levels in our recovery it's no hose barred here i want you to be relaxing totally yourself because you are one of the most brilliant people i know and we have no limitations and another thing i want to say is that we had a doctor on here dr rob kelly you know what dr rob kelly said he said a spirit, a psych. He did a study on this on a PhD level. A psychic change, right, can enact a DNA change in an individual and totally transform the person. So there is an area where you know, beyond vital neurotransmitter hormones, beyond dopamine, beyond trauma, beyond all of this, we could transcend our emotions and and our well being through esoteric spiritual means through having these. Ex- spiritual experiences so i definitely just want you to feel comfortable there you're not going to offend anyone and i want to get the full brunt of your brilliance so definitely no host bar go ahead brother and by the way that was a brilliant podcast i watched that a couple days ago thank you i saw that i don't know if he's in san antonio but i thought that that was cool as well yeah yeah. but no that was great um (laughs) but yeah no like when you said that just the stuff about neurotransmitters and stuff like i'll be real like i'm not a i'm not a I don't know about that really. Right, I've looked right. into it. I've looked right. into like, you know, endocannabinoids, yeah. your just just the effect of different neurotransmitters, but what that brings up in me right. is right. the spiritual aspect of being able to basically not only heal yourself but also to create your own reality that's beautiful. And I love it. Love it. You know, that that is what I got out of all the shit. You know, when I look at all of the bad like the stuff that would be bad or whatever ultimately that's where I was brought to was to that place of realizing, Oh wait, like I like to call it source. Personally, I'm not, I have right, no problem right. with the word God. I like source. All, I like source. But I like source. It just sounds like some new age, <laughs> I mean, new agey type. Right. <laughs> and right. I'm not really into that. Don't, don't get yeah. that twisted. I'm yeah, not yeah, into that yeah. new age. Yeah. Really. But, <laughs> but I will say that, yeah, ultimately that's what brought me to what I like to call source because it, right. It, I did have, look, I'll be completely real. Like I didn't grow up in a Catholic church. I didn't grow up in any type of Christianity except for like my, some of my grandparents on my dad's side and my great grandma. 
And they were, they all, my great grandma was real about that and lived how I think someone who believes in that stuff should, as in right. being compassionate, understanding, right. all of that stuff. So that's my perception of, of Christianity, you know, I'm sorry, but that, that's, that is my perception of it. I understand people have had terrible experiences as it relates to that. And I'm, I'm, that's valid. You know, I'm not here right. to invalidate anyone, but that I wasn't forced to go to church. And I, I, you know, so my perception of it is pretty open. And so just being the, the hippie kid that I was at the time, I was always open to spiritual stuff. And I always felt this is something I didn't even talk about at all, but I felt an overwhelming connection to source as a kid. Like that was part of when I say I was sensitive and I was empathetic, that felt like it was coming from somewhere else somewhat like it was being, like I said it before, beamed down into me somewhat. And it was hard to have that. And I was able to balance that in recovery and I was able in, in addiction, I would block that out basically. But that's a huge part of my life is, is having this real, almost tangible connection to something that's obviously greater than myself. That seems to be compassionate, but that works in very weird ways to where looking at it from the outside, you could be like, what is this? Like, so I, I understand uh, the mentality of like, why, why would bad things happen if there was a God at the same time? I don't, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's deeper than that. And I think that, no, I'm not saying that, Oh, if a bunch of people passed away, that that was meant to be. And that, you know, I'm not going into that. What I'm saying is that for me, all of the bad stuff that I I viewed as ruining my life, getting hit by the, by the car, you know, having a back injury, experiencing chronic pain, experiencing anxiety, going into full blown addiction. All of that brought me ultimately to a place that I only dreamed of, of being okay. And Mm. not just okay, but feeling good in my own skin, being able to address my, my internal voice, address past traumas, make amends to anyone I needed to make amends to like all of it, bro. It was like tailor made to, 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 to work. And I've, I've gotten to see that. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really just expressing gratitude right now, bro. I don't know gratitude how it came is, to this, but I love it. I love it. Like, bro, it. I used to take my pills and abuse my pills and think, man, one day if I could just feel okay and if I could feel better and no longer be dependent, that would be that would just be so amazing. And I would visualize it and I would think about it, but then it would be immediately hit with a, the opposite of no, nah, that's never going to happen. Nope, you're done you're screwed. Like it's not, that's not going to happen in your lifetime. And so there's something, not only my loved ones, but there's some type of force, bro. That was like, uh, uh-uh. uh, you're not right. going to go. You're not right. going to go, bro. You're staying. And I was trying to go for a long time. Right. I didn't want to be here. And so that's, that's huge in my life. And I, and I, I do speak on it, but I also, like I said, because of my perception and, and because I know that a lot of people, will be completely turned off. I still, I do it sparingly and I only will really get, get, like share that stuff 
to people that I can feel um, have the same type of vibe or experience. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like these type of talks and these subject matters are the core of healing and transformation. We know and Dr. Carl Jung talked about this. Right. So for everyone who you know, maybe against Alcoholic Anonymous or anyone who may not want put to put God or spirituality in recovery. He had he had a way of framing it. He says spiritus contra spiritum, which means that you need one spirit to conquer the other spirit. So the spirit of the addiction, you need something that's stronger than the spirit of the addiction to conquer the addiction. So for in my case with alcoholism, when I got on my knees in the middle of the street, and this is me being very stern, rigid, having a God complex, thinking I knew it all. When I was broken and walking, I had nowhere else to go. Like your family, my family was always guided by the force, the source, God, spirituality. I was always a spiritual kid, sensitive kid, empathetic kid, empath even could feel other people's vibes and energy. I was brought to my knees in humility because I realized that that wasn't my, that I had, I could, I could touch that power. I could be that power is within me, but it's not my power. That power is coming from something greater than me that loves me. And when I was broken, I realized this is the limit of what I can do. My limit means I can't take another step in this body this way, in this form, in this reality before dying. So I had to surrender, get on my knees and say something help me. My prayer really was so deep because it was like I knew I said, God, help me. But I had to surrender to a point where I was like, yo, I need everything that's high in me that brought me here. All my ancestors, every angel I have, God, everything you sent to support us in this way, I need now because I'm in trouble. And that was the beginning of my story. So um, I'm definitely think that people don't like to be dogma to be pushed on them and, oh, uh, Jesus bashing or, or Jesus pumping or anything like that. But my thing is just a sense of internal spirituality. If we could all just acknowledge that we're here physically housing something spiritually that's within us. And that thing is real. And it's not just your brain because we have our brain processes, but we have a mind and the mind. You can't measure mind. You can't measure spirit. It's just something that exists that scientific instruments can't even measure. So the further, the furthest point we have in science, they're still saying there's things we just don't know how it happens. We just don't know. Right. I know doctors who's like, we still just don't know how we plug in something to the wall and electricity comes on. We know the mechanics of it. We just don't know how this light, like the light will just appear. They just don't, they can't explain everything. Right. So for me, I like to tell anyone out there that's listening, listen, there's going to be a point in your life, whether you know it or not, where you could, you're going to be, where you're going to hit this wall and, the only thing that could get you over that wall, over that barrier is a sense of something greater could tap it into something special and something beautiful that's within you. You could call that whatever you want. At this point, I don't even think God minds names. God never really told us his name. We label something that we feel that's greater than us. 
but it is something beautiful, which leads to compassion, love and healing. Cause I'm glad my parents taught me about God. I'm glad my mom forced us to go to church. I was pissed every Sunday, like, damn, we got to go to church again. And then being an altar boy and doing all of that stuff at the end of the day, in my darkest hour, that was defaulted into my healing. I I was able to tap into something greater. And when they say there's no atheist in a foxhole, brother, that goes to tell you the moment you feel like you're on your last leg, you're going to be like, I'm done. I hope there's something that can support. When you was in that air, you knew you couldn't fly at that. You was flying, but you knew you was about you going. You said, "I, I hope I don't die this way. And the fact that you didn't and how everything played out to where you're at this stage now, where you're helping people, you had the story, you conquered the addiction. It brought you to this point of grace and humility and compassion where something else, well, we don't even have to label it. We may not even know what it is, but it was something beautiful and greater that made sure when you hit that floor, you was going to make it to get to this point. So I just definitely like, I just started and I know this may be long winded, but as far as sober is dope and everything I'm doing, I, in the beginning, I was like that. I mentioned God once or twice on my first couple of episodes. I started to get technical and I started making it so much. But then lately I'm like, listen, man, at the end of the day, you have to go back to what really the, 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 what really the real deal. You can't take spirituality out of recovery. You can't take God out of recovery. You can't take love and all of these good things because our pain, our trauma, our abuses are all dark. They from dark forces. You know, a kid who's being sexually abused by their dad through addiction, dark forces. He, a kid, you know, being in a traumatic situation, almost dying, the drugs, the people who made the drugs, all of these are dark forces. Addiction in itself is a dark force. You're stuck in this darkest rut in your life. I was in hell. Bro, I was in hell when I say I was in my addiction and I know something's evil was there. It was just like, come to me. Like, uh, they almost had me. And right before they could take me, I got on my knees. It was like, hell no. God, yo, this is exactly. And I never really get this deep into it. My thought, I said to God, I'm captured. The evil one has captured me. I was sending a plea. Like, I felt it. I said, this is not... Yo, I came from a college degree, Catholic family. My brother's a Catholic priest. I was a young scholar, beautiful life, friends, family, no crazy trauma besides losing my dad and a couple of breakups. And this addiction spiraled into something almost demonic, bro. And it it was trying to drag me to hell, like that movie, Drag Me to Hell. And the only reason I'm saying this, man, it was like... If I go back to that day, I'm like, I had this realization that addiction is absolutely evil. It was something that was trying to play on my every fabric of my being, my spiritual. The voice in my head became evil. That inner critic that was telling me, you're going to die. This is going to happen. But it was something outside of my brain that was I could hear and tap into that was like you could get through this it was something bigger than the voice so you said something that triggered me you said that it was a voice in your head but then you had these thoughts but then the voice would come back that thing would say no 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 it'll take you back to your dark cocoon but then you had this hope that you could transform this hope that you could heal and then you was healed so it's something greater that's like don't listen to that don't listen to that the animal part of the reptilian part of your brain or the animal part of your brain that's going to suffocate you and make you feel fear 
what transforms and transcends fear is loving God. And that's my take there. That's what I want to say. And you, you, you triggered me, man, in a good way. Hey, good, we, we like good triggers, right? There's good triggers yeah. left in the world. So go ahead, bro. I didn't mean to like take over the stage, but I, you touched no. me, man. You touched me when you said that. I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I relate to some of the things you said as well. You know, I, while in treatment, I did have a moment to where I prayed in a more traditional way. And this was because I had someone, a really cool dude named Tony Munoz, who uh, he's in recovery himself. He has a podcast himself. He's a great dude. He basically came up to me and was like, yo, have you ever prayed? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah. He was like, and I I mean, I could just be bullshitting if I, if I said I knew what else we said, because I was just, I was messed up at the time. But, but basically he put that in my brain. He said, yo, have you ever prayed? And he, he didn't do it. It wasn't in a whack way. It wasn't like judgmental. It was pure. I felt his, it was very compassionate. Um, and that put it into my head. And so when I got a little bit further into detox to the point of like, you know, being just completely emaciated and shaky and just right. like oh i hate those nauseous because right. I, I hadn't smelt like my sense of smell was gone from right. using opiates and benzos for so long uh but that's neither here nor there but basically that put it in my head and then when i got to a really miserable point i was like i'm gonna like go like get on my knee- knees and pray and look that's i grew up with my grandma talking about like eastern religion and like just trippy stuff not related to anything like that and like i said before yes my great grandma was really into that but it i could see there was some validity and i i tried it and i can say that I, I got some relief from it and it was just it was weird because it it, it wasn't something that i was used to doing you know what right. i mean and right. i did have an internal dialogue with what i like to call the source Um, it was kind of, uh, annoying to me early on (laughs) as a kid and stuff. Uh, but, but ultimately there are moments that I think back to, to where I did feel the vibe of a more traditional God. And for me, it, it evolved into something more when I I got really into like hermeticism in recovery. I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that that's, that I subscribe to that all the right, way. I just, right. I, I, you know, I got really into Egyptology and Egyptian right. gods. And like, I listened right. to the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. Yeah, man, the Emerald Tablet. That's dope. The Emerald Tablets of uh, Hermes. Hermes Transmedicus, right? Yeah, um, so, yeah. you know, it, Thoth, I mean, uh, supposedly Hermes is Thoth, Thoth right, reincarnated. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, also the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Right. Um, the, the, the I'm Kabbal- not going to lie. Those are all audiobook. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the the Cabalion and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And so that is, I was really passionate about that. I also, I mean, I'll be completely real. I've read little excerpts from the Bible. And to me, it seemed like a metaphysical metaphor. This is just my right. perception of it, of a metaphysical metaphor for human experience and suffering. That's what I got out of it. Cause I was reading little parts and I was like, why do I like relate to this so hard? Like, it seems like it's addressing the spiritual awakening or experience that you can have as a human and going into a place of understanding compassion and so on. And that's, that's just, that's my perception. People could think that that's blasphemous because ultimately it would be, I related to the 
the aspect of Jesus and that experience is, is what reading it. I'm not saying I think I'm Jesus or anything like that. I do have long hair, but it, <laughs> I, and look, and I by no means have read the whole Bible, but I can say that to me, I don't get bad feelings related to it. Um, and I was able to really start from that small understanding of any type of actual religion and go and look into things, like I said, like Hermeticism and ancient Egyptology. And I really vibed with that. That was, I became kind of obsessive about that for a while. The Hermetic laws is something that I really think, like, I'm still, I totally subscribe to the Hermetic laws. I think that I've seen all of them firsthand in my experience. And a lot of people nowadays, you know, could think that a lot of those things could be constructs, but I, I definitely have seen that in my life. And, but really what I want to say as it relates to spirituality is that synchronicity, right? right. Synchronicity is the hugest sign for me that there's some type of force that has my best interests at heart. And, when I was shortly after I was making some life changes to a plant-based diet. And after I was deciding to basically not work as a professional chef anymore, all these, it was a lot of stuff going on at the time. And I was getting these little synchronicities that were basically showing me like, you're going the right way. And they were very, very obvious, but, but small to the point that it would make me stop and be like, wow, like there's something that's guiding this whole universe. And really, I like to view God or the source as it's a sense, in my opinion, it's a sentient force that is in everything. So it's not just living beings like animals and humans, but I also think that it's in plants. It's, you know, basically all throughout this world. And so, um, I mean, that's kind of a side note, but, but basically all of that manifested from first me being open to, you know, traditional religion and not having a bad experience with it. And so I just, yeah, I just want to affirm that because it's a huge part of why, like it made it to where, when I saw that word specifically like God in uh, like, you know, the context of like traditional recovery or 12 step, I was like, I'm not going to get hung up on that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get hung, hung up on that and I'm going to do everything to the best of my abilities. And I, I think that um, even people who have had tra- traumatic experiences related to organized religion can also not get hung up on that. I've seen it time and time again. Right. right. Um, you know, I understand if, if you're at a place to where you're not ready to do that, that's honestly fine. I also know people who identify as uh, you know, agnostic or, as atheists that have successfully recovered as well. Right. right. Um, that's just, that's just not my experience. And I can only speak on lived experience, bro. Cause that's, you know, I, I like to view myself as an expert on opiates and benzos and all of that. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that I bro, this is all from the heart lived right. experience. And that's what that's because that's where I learned. That's where that's, that's what I trust. And, I'm not saying that to invalidate doctors. There's a lot of great doctors that are in addiction medicine, right. addictionologists. And there's They're, a lot of idiots too. We got to call a spade yeah. a spade. There's a lot yeah, of bro, doctors. And, yeah. And look, and I, I used to hate doctors, bro. I was like, <laughs> man, like y'all, not only did I get hit by the car, but 
y'all got me on this. And then, and then you want to try to be stingy with them too. And I, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and I can, I can go into something else if you want that yes. as it relates to, this is uh, a touchy subject. Uh, and, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. All right. So look, this is just me being brutally honest. This comes with zero judgment for anyone that is taking method methadone or suboxone. Okay. I was okay. completely blunt with it. All right. Okay. So some people can take these medications and they have a, immense harm reduction. They stop using intravenous drugs. They're able to, you know, work again. They're able to be in society. They may be around their kids again after having them taken away. All like all of that is valid. And I'm not invalidating that whatsoever, but <laughs> there's a big, but my experience was that the last year I was in addiction. I went to a methadone clinic because I was having trouble getting opiates. And I, it was hard to, like, I was continuing to try to get opiates and I couldn't. And I, you know, that goes into the whole thing of people blaming addicts for them not prescribing as much. And I'm not going to, I may go into that in a second, but, but basically I just wasn't able to get as many as I felt I needed. And so I looked up, and I found that methadone was being prescribed for chronic pain and basically that I could get it every single day mm-hmm. and that it was a reliable source. If I'm being completely honest, my intention wasn't good. Okay. It wasn't I, at that point I used opiates, not only because of chronic pain, but also because I was addicted to them and I wanted to get high. Okay. So I'm not going to bullshit about that, but, um, but basically I was able to continue taking my clonopin which is what I was prescribed at the time, which is a benzodiazepine with a very, very long half-life stays in your system a long time. Um, But also I could, I started taking methadone. And so that combination uh, was very intense um, to the point that I was starting to nod out every single day, pretty much all day long. My eyes were rolling back in my head. Um, My, my health was declining. I, I lost a bunch of weight. Um, and basically it, I could increasingly go up in milligrams to methadone, um, just as long as, as the psychiatrist and the clinic knew that I was on both and that they faxed each other or some shit like that, or emailed each other or whatever, then it was basically okay for me to be on the two. And the reason that I, I, I'm bringing this up is because for people that are seeking chronic pain, but Uh, relief, but that are also suffering from addiction, I feel like it can be really sketchy to, to be on something that strong for one, because it is a very strong medication. Uh, It's it's really talked about and really minimized when people speak on it. Mm. Um, But it's a very strong medication. And when, when added to benzos, it, it's just a recipe for respiratory failure. And so Basically, because I didn't, I didn't have impulse control at the time. I didn't, you know, know really what was best for myself. It put me in a position to where it was really scary and it was really hurting. And the reason I bring this up is because there needs to be really a lot of oversight when prescribing someone these medications uh, for chronic pain or for opiate dependence. And there's a, there's a narrative I'm going off now, but I'll, I'll get back. There's a narrative that that opiate addicts can't ever get off opiates. 
And a lot of addictionologists will push this. And I personally do not believe that to be true. No, I don't have a PhD. No, I'm not a medical doctor. But I know from my experience that if you are as bad off as I was, that you can definitely be free from them. And, and so I, I try to just focus on chem, chemical abstinence from all chemicals when talking about this and not really go so much onto focusing on uh, maintenance drugs like, you know, suboxone and methadone, because a lot of people are successfully not shooting up from this and they're active in recovery, you know, but I just do think it needs to be talked about accountability. Um, it, it needs to be talked about with pure honesty and, and the fact that these drugs can, can cause a lot of problems for someone if they are not being accountable, they're not being honest and their intention isn't there. And yes, someone can kind of gain a better intention after getting into recovery and um, getting some input, whether it be from a sponsor, recovery coach or a clinician of some kind, but um, just, it needs to be, it needs to be walked on lightly. Like you need to be very careful basically with right. this. And, right. and, uh, but yeah, it was a huge part of why I am here today though, because it brought me down quicker than anything. And I, I was someone who I occasionally would use, uh, things like heroin. It was never a constant for me. Right. And that doesn't make me better than anyone or anything. It was just personally, I actually preferred the strong oxy or uh, fentanyl was something that I did in active addiction willingly. You know, I sought that out. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I really just want to stress the importance of finding alternative treatments for chronic pain, because I've found that like right now my shoulder hurts a little bit, but it's not to the point that I need to take an opiate. And if I stretch, if I take an Epsom salt bath, if I go to the chiropractor, at, at, you know, if it really comes down to it, if I take some ibuprofen or, you know, some Tylenol, that to me is just so much more worth it than possibly compromising my spiritual connection and maybe my recovery, my sobriety, my clean time. You know what I mean? And right. so this is making me go off to a whole nother thing, but I, I won't like, I think that if you're in recovery for opiates, you shouldn't take them no matter what. Like I, and, and I'm not saying people need to suffer or anything, but I've had two wisdom teeth pulled, no opiates, other dental work done, no opiates. You know, I've had a flare up in my spondylolisthesis, which is uh, something that was basically caused by my spinal injury. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like an inflammatory thing and it causes a lot of chronic pain. I hate saying chronic pain, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I've been able to navigate that without opiates and I have avoided them at all costs. And honestly, it's been a lot more manageable then people will, you know, admit, or, you know, some doctors will admit. And I just, I just don't subscribe to the narrative that you're screwed for life. If you become addicted to opiates, I don't, I don't think that's true that some will say that you'll be dysphoric, that there's like, just no hope basically for you ever to feel good again. And I think with long-term clean time or sobriety with, you know, positive affirmations, addressing your internal voice, sharing how you feel, any type of therapy that you can use at your disposal, any type of just healing that you can, like, you have to do a bunch of stuff, but then it's, it, it, it helps with your chronic pain. And, you know, we can't just expect to, I'm sorry, but 
we have to get over the mentality of just, oh, I'm going to take a pill and then that's it. There's, there's a lot of, of work to be done. And, and really your intention and your words have a huge, like play a huge role in it. And it, it sounds, look, I'll say this. It sounds very condescending and inconsiderate to people that are experiencing this. I know because that's how I felt when people would be like, it's mind over matter. Like, you know, just, I understand that. I understand that that sounds whack and that it just, but it's, it's true. Like there's, there's really validity to, to your focus, your intention and your words. I love it. When I was in rehab, um, I, we, you know, the alcoholics and the, yeah, the alcoholics would be on the second floor, right? So that's my floor. But on the first floor, it was always really intense. It was always, it seemed a lot more medical and it just seemed a lot more intense. It was a lot more security. It was a lot of stuff going on. And I realized that was the methadone floor. And um, I used to see them give, they used to come in and get these little, um, pink cups. And I used to think, I used to say I look like Pepto-Bismol. I mean, when I first was in there, I was like, y'all down here for Pepto-Bismol? And they was like, nah, man, this is, I didn't know nothing about heroin. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't know nothing about methadone. But as people were leaving, right, you would see, because we had to leave, because I was in an outpatient. That's probably one of the ways I was able to successfully do it for a year because we were, were they kept us in dorms like these three quarter shelter dorms and the dorm was part of the outpatient. So you could only leave to go there and had to go back and you would sleep and socialize here. Then you would go here. You would see people walking and different points. They'll just be sleeping. And like some people it just look like everyone was freezing in place and nodding off. Then you'll see people with their bones really bent up and they will be on these canes and their back will be totally hunched and they'll be walking like in this weird way. And then what I learned was that uh, methadone breaks down your bones through time. And you yeah. And you would see people really crippled and really contorted. And it was like really sad. And it was a lot of old people. And I was and I was saying to myself, but I'm in treatment. Like, when is you like, when do you graduate? That's what I used to say, because like we had this point where you'll be you'll be done. You get a certificate. You'll be good. And they was like, nah, man, this is like a lifestyle. This is what this is my treatment. And I just never understood it. So it's it's comforting to hear you say to people that there is another option which I don't think may alienates anyone. There is another option. So, you know, w- your thoughts on that? I mean, look, the thing is, is that there's a huge stigma behind it. And so that's why I step loudly when I'm speaking on this, because I don't want to invalidate anyone's experience. I don't want to discourage anyone. Um, the thing is, is that, look, I mean, I said it before, I'll say it again. If you are like anything like me and you are just a hopeless mess like just low level just feeling screwed and like there's no option and that you'll never heal you you can like it's totally possible it's just the thing is i'll be completely brutally honest is that for a lot of people they may not be in that place to where they're they're ready to be completely off everything and that and i'm not saying that's for everyone but that's a lot of people's experience i think from talking to people that are, that are partaking in this. And I, and like I said, it, uh, I'm not going to invalidate that. I understand. But with that being said, I can speak on my experience and the fact that the way it was sold to me, the way that it was explained to me was predatory. And it was, 
it, it persuaded me that what I was doing actually could be the right thing for me. And even went as far to say that it would help your bones on um, the, the info that I got from the clinic that I went to yeah. told me that it could help heal me in certain ways. And that was not the experience that I had. Um, I remember being in detox and my bones hurt, you know, like literally all of my bones hurt, especially my arms, my forearms hurt so bad. Um, but look, there's, I can get into stats. I don't really like talking about stats, but I will say that. So here we go. 25% of people that take methadone, they take it for the rest of their life. Wow. Okay. Um, 25%, another 25% will taper and get off it. 50% of people that take methadone abuse it and they take other drugs and they, they sell it or, and look, like I said, I'm not, I hate to be the dude coming here saying stats because personally, I think that stats can be biased and that they aren't always legit, but I didn't know that until maybe last year and I was looking into it and I was just like, damn, bro, like 50% of people are literally abusing it and that needs to be reformed. Like if that's the case, I understand that some people's lives may be saved and they view it as saving their life. I personally like to say that it's not a substance that saves your life. It's the universe or it's source. It's something that guided you there. And I don't, I don't want to put that much emphasis on a substance, even if it's having a, an effective even if it's effectively keeping you off intravenous drug use, that's just me though. And look, I just, when, when I learned those stats, I started looking into the specific, I mean, I don't want to put this dude on blast. I'm not going to say his name, but the doctor that ran, that was like the acting physician or whatever at the clinic that I went to was heavily pushing a narrative that was basically saying, you're going to be on opiates for the rest of your life. If you don't get on maintenance drugs, you're going to relapse. And when I saw this, I was like, damn, bro, like, I, I don't vibe with that. I don't think that that has to be true. And I just don't, that gets me into some like conspiracy type shit. Like, are you doing this? Do you have some other motivation? Are you monetarily compensated for this? I understand that. Right. Right. You know, I understand how that sounds, bro, but it's the same way the meat industry has special they they pay scientists to do their own studies to tell you that it's healthy for you, right? Or they'll say it the same thing with sugar. The sugar industry, they pay their own scientists to do their own legit bogus science to tell people that it's okay, that sugar is okay. Even smoking back in the fifties, like early sixties, fifties, they had scientists and they was paying people to tell people that smoking is healthy for you. It'll make you healthier. Smoke cigarettes was marketed as a health food, as a, I mean, a health, like a health substance. Right. And my thing is if they're doing that with something as simple as cereal and sugar and dairy imagine what they're doing with big pharma and big drugs you know the sackler family had to go through that lawsuit um they know what they was doing they was aware how addictive it was these doctors get super kickbacks i mean uh, the methadone flip um for um even even chemotherapy you know chemotherapy flipping chemotherapy is one of the only one of the few procedures that a doctor can 
make a profit on. So he could put whatever he want on top of the price. So like it's in his best interest to, to recommend it to people. It's not like some, most people don't really always need chemo, but there's a big business there. So there's, there, there are doctors out there that's throwing people through chemo that doesn't even need it because they can make all of this money. And that's when I heard that, I was like, look, and this is no, this is a kick on doctors. This is a kick on the medical industry. And this is a kick on big pharma. It's not a kick on good doctors who do what they're supposed to do, but doctors who want to line their pockets by knowing the bad science, but still recommending it to good people. And that's the problem. And I think that's where the regulation needs to come in. But you're dealing with these big businesses, like the, you know, it's like the proverbial devil, man. These people, got so much money they can pay people to say whatever they want them to say well i mean i feel you and i agree 100 percent um something that comes to mind when you say that which is not kind of piggybacking off it but but not directly related is that i think a lot of doctors understand the esoteric aspect of diseases of addiction and other things and so I talked to a, a nurse in my family about this and, you know, a surgery nurse that was 30 years experience. And I was like, why does it seem like a lot of the medical industry is basically like either giving you a positive spell or a negative curse. And then it's also correlates to a medication that has a name that sounds like a, like a fucking, like a spell, like, and you take that, and you tell yourself, I have anxiety, I have anxiety, and you're taking a benzodiazepine medication. And it's called Alprazolam, or it's called Xanax. And it has yeah. this name that's all weird and esoteric. Right. And you're taking the pill and you're thinking, oh, I'm ex- I have anxiety, I have panic. I, bro, and I know this sounds crazy and it sounds just, but there's some real validity to that. It is, and it I've, is. I've seen it time and time again. And I think maybe some doctors aren't aware of it. Some are, um, but there definitely is this dehumanizing force that exists. And then when you say like the darkness, I don't like to say darkness because people associate dark with negative and stuff. Right, and I, I right. think that that's just very, that's just going into polarity. Correct. And correct. You know what I mean? And look, right. that's not here nor there, but I, I think personally darkness might even be the good and light is the bad. I don't I know. I know. Like, I, I know that. Like, I've, yeah. I'm with you. You I'm feel me? You. Right. Okay. Right. So I just think that that's relevant when we're speaking about these medications and we're speaking about these doctors is that we basically, I just want to affirm personal responsibility right. and how important it is, bro. Because like, that's what changes shit. I'm not saying that you can't get guidance and that there aren't some some clinical doctors that are amazing. You know, I had an addictionologist early on who he's the dude who suggested the treatment I went to, you know, he went to that same treatment center and his name is Dr. Herbert Mund and he passed away and you know, he's, he's brilliant. And he, he wrote a book called, I think there's an addict in my closet, if I'm not wrong. Uh, Mm. You check that out if you're interested. It's a very, very interesting book. Um, But, but anyways, I'm just saying that to affirm the clinical treatment that I did get. Okay. But you have to take responsibility for your own mind and body. And that's not to discourage people from seeking help. It's just, we gotta be, you've got to really guard that and be very careful in what you do because 
before you know it, you can be in that place to where there's this overwhelming negative energy that has a hold of you. And that's, that's what I experienced with opiate and benzo addiction to where I was falling into an abyss, bro. Like it was visual. I was blacked out for so long that it was visually when I would black out, it was, I was in a space that was down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It wasn't going up, bro. I was falling and I could feel like I was falling down. And during this time is when I would stop, I was experiencing like symptoms of respiratory failure and that I would stop breathing and then gasp. And uh, that's what prompted me to, that's what prompted my family to send me to treatment. And so it's just, it's crazy when you look at it from the esoteric side that I went from pessimistic, negative, falling into an abyss, like feeling just screwed. And like, I didn't want to live until there was a force that like forced me to, to, to live kind of. And at first I was like pissed off. I was like, bro, what? Like, nah, like I, I don't, being brutally honest is I was like, nah, I don't want this to happen. Like I, I know, I know what life is and I'm very arrogant, you know, just, I know that nothing good can happen. And on the plane to Mississippi, I was like, I hope this crashes right now. Wow. Straight up, That's wow. what I was thinking. You know, I was like, will I was like, trying to will it to happen. Like, please just this plane just needs to crash. And, you know, and then a couple hours later, I'm in a, in a van driving to treatment and I'm fucking crying. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just, uh, it's crazy how, how I've experienced polarity in, in my life. And, and like, I can see it in other people as well. And like, I really just want to stop for a second, just give you an affirmation. Cause like I'm on, you know, I'll talk about TikTok. I'm on TikTok. That's like my favorite interface. You know what right, I mean? I right. just like it. Right. I like it. I like the short form. I like that stuff. And so I randomly came across, you were on my for you page, I'm pretty sure. And I was like, immediately I was like, okay, this person is real. This is not like you didn't a lot of content that I've seen is, is just super fake. And then I just, it turns me off immediately. And so I could just hear it in your voice. I could see it in your eyes. And I was like, okay, I need to talk to this person. I really, it was another like synchronicity type thing where I was right, like, okay, right, right. You, you talk about some of the same disciplines that I like are very near and dear to me, like positive affirmations, seeking therapy, you know, prayer and stuff like that is very powerful. The power of intention is was what I like to think of as my version of, of prayer, basically. Um, even though I do do more traditional prayers as well, but, but yeah, man, like I just, I just want to give you an affirmation because it's no, it's, it's super meaningful. You're coming from an authentic place and that's ultimately, that's what we need. And just a lot of times people in recovery can get into this dogmatic place and all it does is turn people off, you know? And so I'm, I'm grateful to have met you, even though it's not in person. And yeah, man, like, I just, I just got to say that. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I definitely will meet, we'll meet. We have a long road to travel and helping people. And I'm not in this for the short run. I'm, I devoted my life to kind of just like taking the grace that was given to me and just like paying it forward by sharing it. And that's the best that that's why I love, you know, that's why I use the platform the way I do, because I don't have to, you know, go from the mountaintop and tell people you need God. You know, you never hear me even talk like that. How I frame it is this is how my like this is my 
I'm alive because of miracles. Something had mercy on me because I was like totally at wit's end. And I think we on this long road with sharing. And the same way when I hear you, you're right. It's a certain vibe when I hear you speak. And I'm like, all right, this dude, you get straight to the point. You really in there, you're in and out. And it's really important what you're saying because you're giving people these micro tips. And what I love about micro information and feeding people that way in these short bits um, it sticks with people and it adds up through time, right? And it's easy for people to take notes. They say, oh, because I take a lot of notes through TikTok, your stuff. And I say, oh, he said, what's that? I'm going to write this down and read it later. So we're fighting a good fight. And it's hard because we're always like trying to walk this tightrope, not offending one person, or but being honest and sharing. And that's why I learned that I'm going to put all my truth out there and the people who it will emanate with will stick around and the people that it may not emanate with, they'll go somewhere else and find their truth. Right. I had to stop trying to walk that tightrope. Like I feel like the other day I posted some real deep testimonies about me and it was Easter. And I was talking about how God played in my life on Instagram and stuff. And I lost some followers, right? I lost a good seven, five. Me and my girl was laughing about it. But my brother, as a priest taught me, he said, when you start telling your absolute truth, there will be a purging in your friends. It'll be a purging within your community. There will be some form of purge. And whoever's remaining will be the, the your people. Those are the people that you could roll with. And the other people, life will bring them back to you some way when they discover their truth. So let's just keep rocking, brother. Um, one thing I want to talk on real quick is this beautiful thing. I never heard of this in all of my time. Compassionate service. That's beautiful, man. And uh, could we just talk about that a little bit? Because that's deep. But I yeah. think I had that that's lacking in a lot of ways in a lot of places. Okay, so look, I'm not trying to invalidate tough love. Some people that seems to work for. Um, for me, that turns me off immediately. That's right. just that's just me, man. Like I, I don't. I turn. That reminds me of authority. <laughs> okay, right, that right. reminds me of. That brings up some of my my hippie stuff that I grew up with of not liking authority and not liking you know people that are seeming seemingly like on a high horse of, of some kind, for some reason, the aggressive delivery doesn't vibe with me. Um, so basically I realized through my experience that that was the key to me being willing to share. Honestly, um, people like to say safe space or whatever. I don't really use that terminology. It's cool. I have no problem with it, but specifically that woman I told you about Lisa Williams, she she came in real hard at first and she saw me recoil <laughs> right. and and then she pulled back and went with the compassionate service route and that's automatically when i started to open up and so i had multiple people while i was in treatment that did that for me i was unable to write so i couldn't do my assignments um like my hand was just too shaky and i hadn't written in in years you know i I did like write music and stuff, but it was all on my phone. You know what I mean? And right. I wasn't writing with pen or paper. Um, and so that there was another person named David that sat down with me and was like, yo, I will write for you. Just talk and tell me what you want me to write. Right. Um, so that was another like little spark there was like, oh, okay, this, this is doing something. I'm, I'm able to share because I had this 
experience with uh, an intake person at the treatment center that was just very clinical, very cold, very methodical. And it made me have a straight up panic attack. Like I couldn't wow. talk to them. Wow. And it, it, I was trying to, but I was unable. And then I went into a full blown panic attack, like hyperventilation thing. And they took me to the, the uh, infirmary and they were like, you could, I saw this dude's eyes were like huge. He was like, what is wrong with this guy? And, right. and basically, you know, they sat me down and said, this is behavioral, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, I did think, oh yeah, maybe like my motivations back then were still very drug seeking. So I think part of me might've been like, if I have a panic attack, they might give me something good or some shit. But, but anyways, that turned me off. Like, right, so I got right. to see directly, like, here's someone that's being compassionate and that's being of service. Here's someone that's coming from a clinical perspective and is making me shut down. And honestly, the authority feeling it, it makes, it would make me dishonest too, is I felt like I needed to hide and I needed to oh, right, right. not be direct. And that's why I focus so much on lived experience and, and that type of stuff. That's why I'm just, I'm so big on that. And so basically that, that my conception of that as being something that was really helpful for me started in treatment. And then when I got out, I was in sober living for six months and they were like, yo, you need to, you know, you need to attend meetings or you need to get a sponsor. And so basically I related that to the same type of thing to where, oh, I need to find someone that can be brutally honest, but that is also compassionate. And so I, you know, found someone who was just that. And that's when I was able to get even deeper and go into past resentments and to go into my shortcomings in various ways and, you know, all that stuff. And so that's man, that's why I advocate for it is because it, it just for people like me that are just just super sensitive, you can say empathic and say all that stuff. It human connection is the key to my recovery and not only human connection. Also, I would say, of course, the connection is something greater, but that played such a pivotal role in the action. So in the physical action that I had to take. And so that's that's why. When I share, I try to I try to come from that place. Right. Um, I also am ex I pride myself in being extremely direct because that's something that I learned honestly later on in recovery. Um, and I was suffering because I wasn't being direct with people. Um, but yeah, I, I really learned through experience, bro, that that's that's what helped me. And so I'm only gonna stick to things that help me. And I stick to things that I've experienced because I think that keeps my integrity and I'm not just, you know, speaking out of turn and just speaking on shit that I don't know about, you know? I love it, brother. I love it. Um, look, you, you gave me a lot of good information. Um, just give me a second. I have to plug in my charger real quick because we went way over my um, <laughs> battery power of my laptop. And I want to wrap with a with uh um hold on where's my uh, there we go good beautiful i love that brother so um <clears throat> what i want to do is we covered a lot um this is uh 
Hold on. How do you feel about the so far? Is there anything before we wrap? Because I edit a lot of this out. So I'm gonna edit this little piece out. What do you um is there anything you want to wrap? Anything you felt like you left out? I might do this in two episodes, which is cool. Um, I might make the YouTube longer. I'll see. We're gonna have fun with this episode. Um, but the last question I'm gonna ask you, and you have some time to think about it, is if you could um you five things that you you, you know, some your 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 overall greatest tips that you could put together for someone who's in this position you were in and what would you say to them that's how we're going to end it but before that i just want to know if it's anything you wanted to touch on that we left out i mean honestly bro i came into this with no preconceived plan i just was going to just go from the heart bro because that's just how that's just that's just how i do it man and and that's right right that's how i keep it authentic you know it it may not be as concise (laughs) as i would like it to be but that's okay and and so no i mean i would be more than willing to hop on here again in the future and we can go a little bit more specific and concise but uh but no bro i feel like you really guided it in a way that was super authentic and i was able to touch on some really important stuff to me you know right right so all right so going into it this is where we are um macaulay it is and am i pronouncing that correctly yeah yeah all right cool cool. you are bro i was surprised because people go macaulay is a lot is is People yeah. go with that a lot. Okay. But yeah, Macaulay. It, it sounds like people say the name Macaulay Culkin. I hate yeah. to have to do that, but and that's how I tell yeah. people my name. I'm like, home right. alone. And then right. they're like, okay. That's yeah. dope. That's dope. You're the first. It's all different, but. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> cool name. Well, look, I want to thank you. We covered so much today. And look, this is a big subject and I will pull you in whenever we need our in-house expert on this subject. You're one of my fellow um I wanted I, I want to thank you for talking about chemical abstinence. That's something new that I learned today. That phrase. Sometimes these phrases could spark, you know, um, interest in us. Compassionate, being compassionate. That touched me a lot. Having emotional stability and things like that. For any advice, what would you say in closing? Can you give the world to anyone that was in your predicament that may be dealing with you know, emotional trauma and stuff that has to deal with benzodiazepines, someone that may be in chronic pain. We don't like the word chronic pain, but that may be in just debilitating pain where they have to deal with opiates and they're in that dark hole, that abyss that you described. What are some of your overall tips? And if you could wrap it and give someone some concise, what would you leave them with um, moving on in their journey? Okay. So before we wrap, I do want to just say one thing about chemical abstinence and I'll go right into that. So just there, for me, the well-being that I get from chemical abstinence is immense. And that's why I promote it. When I say chemical abstinence, I say, I mean, no medication. This is not a, a hit on medication, but no medication for, for me personally. Um, no caffeine, no nicotine, no illicit drugs, no alcohol. So all of that. That's in, that's just me. That's what has brought me the most relief. And so I just really want to say that give yourself a chance at seeing where you're at at a baseline without anything at all. And a lot of times we'll find that we're in a lot, we're in a very good position actually um, after getting into recovery or, or whatever, it can be rough when you're in early recovery and you've been abusing drugs. I'm not saying that right then you're going to feel better. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but yeah, I just, I really want to just emphasize how important that is to me. I've been, uh, no nicotine, no caffeine now for three years. And that is when, uh, that's when huge stuff started to shift. Um, 
during the same time I went fully plant-based, actually vegan, but I just say plant. I, I went, I did that at the same time. So that was huge for me. But if I were to say like my advice for people that are experiencing opiate addiction, benzo addiction, even alcoholism or any other thing, like the key is not only being honest with yourself, but being honest with other people, that's, what's going to get you the help that you need. Like if, if you have the capacity to do that, then you're, you're most likely going to recover if you also can gain some willingness later down the road. And so I'm a huge advocate for rigorous honesty, um, brutal honesty, honest, because it just, that as someone who was honestly a pathological liar in fiction, that was one of the biggest things for me to get over. And it was what enabled me to share my experience and ultimately, you know, feeling and sharing will help you to heal. So that would be the main thing. Like the first thing that I would suggest, um, I would also say, don't feel any shame in asking for help. Don't feel any shame in going to treatment, going to rehab. Uh, you know, don't feel any shame if you want to go a traditional 12 step route, or if you want to go a more plant medicine route or harm reduction route, I'm with you hundred percent with that as well. Um, I support anyone's personal authority, basically, to, to do what they feel is right. I would say that sometimes in early recovery, we don't know what's best for ourselves. So, so right, right. I'll throw that in there. But so, so that would be another aspect to it is, is don't be afraid to, to ask for help. Take that honesty, then ask for help. Then from there, you can share your experience. Then you will be, the universe will offer things to you that you can use or not. Um, and then honestly, from there, it would be take positive action. Um, and look, all of this, like, I'm not really doing this and this is right off the cuff. Like there should, if you want a lot of peace of mind, there should be some reliance on something greater than yourself. Um, that's just my, that's what I've experienced is that the more that I like saw that in my life through synchronicities and the more that I asked the universe for help or source, the, the more clarity and love I felt from my experiences. Like that's just, that's just what I've seen and what, what I've felt. Um, so that's definitely there, but the positive action is a huge thing because insight or awareness without action is misery. And that's something that mm. I've just been saying randomly lately. Um, that was my experience where I had insight for a long time and it was miserable because I didn't have a, a solution or positive action to go with it. So so positive action that that can look like different things for for different people, but but yeah, don't let the stigma of addiction uh, keep you from getting sober, getting clean. Uh, ultimately, everything that you've done in addiction, anything you've done to hurt someone, anything you've done to hurt yourself, can directly be addressed as long as it doesn't put other people at risk, or or as long as you won't like get murdered by someone that right. you did something really bad to. Right. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean. Uh, but yeah, so like my, my answers right here are pretty generic, but those, these disciplines are like huge for me. Another thing would be learning to meditate, starting your day, like intention what, 10 minutes, bro. is all you need. You do like, you can go further, but 10 minutes every single day, set your intention. I do 10 minutes, positive affirmation. I do intention for the people I love and care about, which you could also call as prayer. I literally ask 
the universe to guide myself, the ones I love, the ones I care about to keep them healthy, healthy, happy, all that stuff. And so that's how I start my day every single day. Um, I've gone at the, at the beginning, I, I was actually doing readings and stuff, um, you know, out of specific books, but now it's more just, I just get into it. I say positive affirmations like uh, related to abundance, related to um, healing, clarity. Um, you can literally, affirmations can be tailor-made for anything that you're experiencing. Um, it's changed my whole perception on, on just manifesting good things in my life. And it's a huge part of why I'm where I'm at today. Um, but yeah, then from there, just, uh, this is like super, just drink water, (laughs) like, you know, wake up, drink water. Like a lot of us in recovery, will get into drinking too much caffeine. Um, especially if you're someone who experienced anxiety, this is not, this is generally kind of detrimental for, for those that are prone to anxiety. And a lot of times you won't even know, and it'll just be so normal that it's just part of our everyday, you know, a lot of, a lot of nicotine consumption, a lot of, uh, caffeine consumption and not drinking enough water. So I had to learn the hard way from kidney stone type stuff. And that's ultimately what got me to a place of drinking water. So I really, if you're, you know, just drink water is going to be a huge one and make sure to eat food and do self-care. So self-care involves not only the minimal water and, and, uh, hygiene and stuff like that. And also, I think it's really important and a huge part of self-care for me is internal dialogue. And you can address that through affirmations. So I'm kind of just putting it all together. Um, that's ultimately what I do. Um, if I'm going to be like real concise, uh, 12-step programs, can they work for people that really put a lot of effort into them? I'll right. say that. I agree. Uh, <laughs> you got to really do it. And, uh, you know... Get a, get a sponsor. If you're going to do it, get a sponsor, work the steps. Don't just go to meetings and think that that's going to change everything. That's a community aspect. And ultimately it gives you an opportunity to work the 12 step and to share a solution, but there's more to it than just going somewhere and sitting down and sharing your experience with a group. It's helpful, but there's, you got to really get deep, deep into all past trauma, resentments, all that stuff. So I just want to say, yeah, if you're going that route, then just make sure to do it to the best of your ability. Put in as much effort as you put in getting high or, or drunk, but more. And uh, yeah, I mean, same thing. It was if you're going to go the alternative route, just do that to the best of your ability. Put in as much effort as you can. Try to go harder than you did in addiction. And, you know, you'll be on the road to recovery. And, and I, you have my full support. Anyone that's listening to this, like you can reach out to me via DM, email, I always respond to people within at least a day, if not two at the most. And yeah, like I really appreciate the opportunity. I love your podcast. You've had some brilliant people on here, bro. I was like, damn, he's really like, he's (laughs) really coming with the guests, bro. I I watched about three of them and I was like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, this is, this is legit. I really like the way that you're coming at it and the the experts that you're having in here. So I really appreciate the opportunity to to share my experience, man, because it's, it's an honor. And I just want to say also, uh, I think I was on YouTube and I saw that you're a lyricist. 
Yeah, you got yeah, bars, yeah, bro. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I know we can kind of distance ourselves from that when we get into recovery a little bit. Yeah, the, yeah. the words that we say and stuff can be right. uh, questionable sometimes. Right. I'm not saying you, but just me yeah, personally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, bro. Like I, I gotta also <laughs> say that, and I think uh, it's cool to have someone with your energy that's talking about recovery. Someone who's right, obviously right. creative and coming from a, a badass perspective, bro. Because I relate to it. You know. Yeah, maybe we could do some tracks one day. We'll figure it out because I, I I have an album. I'm definitely not going to stop rapping. I said, you know, one thing on that note, that's one thing addiction took away from me, my love for music. And I I, started, I retired I retired in, in my 20s and just says I'm never going to make music again. I didn't get famous. And then when I found my recovery, I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to let addiction take away my creativity and I'm a rap till I'm 70. So, you know, I said, rap, you know, and then I started rapping again. I got my team together. And there's a beautiful story there because every time I spit and go into a booth or do something, I'm doing it to let, you know, the universe know you didn't get me, man. I'm still I'm still still going to create. Creation is one of the key things in my recovery and i tell everyone you know the abcs of life always be creating something god is the creator or the source of it's always something being created a universe a planet a bird a, a baby always find some way to create something because creativity tames the beast you know so thank you for showing me love there and just where can people find you macaulay uh, when they want to I mean, look, I'll be completely honest. I am. I love TikTok. That's that's where right, I make right. the most content. Like you said, I like doing these little spurts of info. I feel like people nowadays have a very short attention span. Right. That That is where I'm at. I'm at Macaulay.Sexton, M-C-C-A-U-L-E-Y dot S-E-X-T-O-N. That's where I'm putting most of my like content creation energy. I'm definitely going to be doing YouTube videos, but um, I want to make that more of a collaborative effort. Um, but yeah, really, I mean, I'll be real. I'm not going to plug my Instagram or anything. Like it's the same okay. name, Macaulay.Sexton. Uh, I don't really vibe with that interface. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I'll be right. I was like writing long ass paragraphs and people <laughs> were like, what, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. but yeah, I'm on TikTok, bro. I'm, I post three videos a day. I'm on nice. there. Nice. Yeah. You know, that's, I like it. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap with our episode with Macaulay Sexton. He is an uh, inspiration. This has been an amazing experience. Thank you so much, my brother, for joining us. We are extremely excited. Everyone out there, please, you know, be compassionate with yourself, patient with yourself, love yourself, you know, look to the source, look within yourself, find that power within to find your greatness. Don't give up. And... You know, you could do this on your own. So think outside the box when it comes to chemical dependency and let's focus a lot more on chemical abstinence and different ways to get free from all of these substances and live a natural life. I love you all. You're listening to the Sobers Dope Podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan, and I'll catch you guys on the other side. God bless.
Mega Brand. Yeah. Dollar more ghoulish. Most men are born foolish. That's why the motto's been more music. Was a poor student, so my heart had decided to pour into it. Was taught to use it or lose it, so I tore through it. Like a hot knife and some margarine, skill sharpening. We don't worry about the marketing. Cause the most precise laser targeting Can't save you when you putting garbage in Hard hardening, flip the critical Went from miserable to spitting jewels in middle schools From Philly to Liverpool Psycho man that's on the canvas No longer random cause my moves I carefully plan them Spitting like huge cannons with Mr. Buchanan Eating through famine, the last two standing Remember when the world is crashing on ya Victory is right around the corner Mega rain Never give up, never give in Getting upset and starting to win Never give in, never give up The tough get going when the going get tough Come on Never give up, never give in Getting upset and starting to win Never give in, never give up The tough get going when the going get tough Come on Let's try Failed twice, came up on the third Always kept it 100, no spam in the words 10x on my moves, expanding the verb Shout out to the fan mega, never ran with a bird X marks the spot, I'ma do it to win For my fam, I'ma stack and flow through to the end Can't rock with all this fake shit and weak ass rhymes The meek inherits, I'd rather spit these deep ass lines Went from losing a grip to making a grip Sick with elusive of bricks to dodging a bid Hope that prodigy lives, the progeny is Rap is the oddity win, the marketing wins Pop is the option to spin, watching the gin Only deal with purity in them, my beautiful kin Always keep maturity in them, these beautiful women Pop, he unusually sin, but you should be winning, let's do it again Never give up, never give in Getting upset is letting them win Never give in, never give up The tough get going when the going get tough, come on Never give up, never give in Getting upset is letting them win Never give in, never give up The tough get going when the going get tough, come on Let's try it.